welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 128 for Wednesday, July 27th, 2022. I'm your host, Ken Gagne. In 2014, I hosted a PAX East panel about feminism in gaming. When the panel was over, I realized that the discussion needed to continue. It needed to feature more voices, and it needed to be heard by more people. Three months later, I launched this podcast. Polygamer evolved quickly in its first year. At first, it was both an audio and a video show. But after five episodes, I eliminated the YouTube component to focus on the audio podcast. Soon thereafter, I realized that focusing on the problematic aspects of gaming was important, but not sustainable. Listening to a show that only discussed what was wrong would be debilitating, to say the least. So I decided to expand the show to also celebrate the passions and successes of the diverse gaming community. Polygamer launched one month before Gamergate. That horrible event underscored the need to be having these conversations. Eight years later, there is still much wrong with the world, from Trump's election in 2016, to the murder of George Floyd in 2020, to the repeal of Roe v. Wade in 2022. But within the gaming community, there is reason for hope. There are more games, more conventions, and more podcasts featuring diverse voices than ever before. There are corporate investments in diversity programs, and educational and retention opportunities throughout the pipeline and employees at places like Riot Games, Activision, and Ubisoft are bringing forward lawsuits and investigations, sending a powerful message that the culture of gaming has to change. All this is happening because of stories. When people speak up and their voices are heard, change happens. It has been an honor for Polygamer to be one of the many outlets available for diverse voices to share their stories, their hopes, their dreams, and their accomplishments. Now it's time for voices other than my own to be heard. Every podcast eventually ends, and now it's time for Polygamer's Sunset. Not because it's no longer needed, but because things have gotten better. For example, there was a time when Anita Sarkeesian of Feminist Frequency would not make podcast appearances because anything spontaneous would be taken out of context by trolls. She felt the need to script everything she said. Now she has her own podcast. More people like her are standing up, refusing to be silenced, and are sharing their stories. Now you can hear their stories without needing me as a filter. Also, on a personal note, the past two years of the pandemic have been hard. I've been hosting two podcasts, publishing a quarterly print magazine, and writing a blog about my three consecutive years of travel, all while working full-time. Maintaining that level of creative output during a global crisis has gotten to me. I'd like to create just a little more time and space for self-care. But before I go, I want to look back on the last eight years. This podcast had a somewhat selfish motivation. I wanted to learn. I grew up in a conservative, homogenous environment, and I want to hear the stories I've been missing. I admit, I was the primary audience for my own podcast. So many wonderful, generous gamers accepted my invitation to this podcast, and I'm so grateful for the time and energy they took to share their stories with me and with all of you. Today I'm sharing clips from some of my most memorable episodes and providing original commentary on those clips. I could find something worth sharing from every episode, but to keep this to a reasonable length, 
I'm choosing only eight. So let's get started with this trip down memory lane. The excerpts I'll be playing are the guest's voice only. Anytime you hear my voice, that's me talking to you right now. So let's start with episode number 15, Zoe Quinn of Crash Override, first aired on February 11th, 2015. They and Crash Override partner Alex Lifshitz were calling from an undisclosed bar in California where they shared some of their own experiences navigating Gamergate and why it's important for them to help other people do the same. I think educating people on what the, the actual impacts of these sort of cases are is, is super important. I mean, that's one of the reasons I've been so upfront about everything that's been happening with me. And one of the reasons that I haven't just shut up and go and go like vanished as soon as this started happening is that I think that when you're targeted in such a way, there's sort of a, a tendency or a survival instinct that tells you if you just turtle up, never let them see you sweat. Just, you know, they'll like not let them know that they're getting to you. Like that's that's part of the part and parcel for building into this don't feed the trolls advice that stopped being useful forever ago because these aren't trolls these are people that are abusing you so I think the unfortunate side product of that is that a lot of people don't actually realize how this can impact you you know when they don't see you sweat they don't see you be human either they don't see how this affects you they, they just see the, the cold composed PR face because that, that makes sense it's, it totally makes sense and to be fair, that's what a lot of people can do and should do because first and foremost, you have to take care of yourself. But the unfortunate consequence is that a lot of people just think that it's a matter of not posting, that it's just the internet, that it's somehow opt-in. So when people are targeted where this is their livelihood, this is their place of business, this is where their, all of their support networks are, people don't know what it's like to have an, a wave of all-encompassing hate just completely demolish that and make it so that your phone's constantly buzzing and that you have to have those hard conversations with the person you're seeing telling them, hey, maybe you should run, maybe you shouldn't be with me because you might be a target, or, or to call their dad up at 2 in the morning and let them know that there's probably a wave of people that are about to ring up their phone and call their daughter a whore to them. Like, people don't see those moments. They just see the PR. And I think that is starting to change now that so many of us are starting to stand up and sometimes that's all people need is they just need to see someone who is hit by the storm and keeps standing and keeps trying to uplift others. It's terrible that people like Zoe Quinn and Anita Sarkeesian and so many others have the stories that they have, that these things have happened to them. For those who prioritize their own safety or self-care or who didn't have the time, energy, resources, or mental bandwidth to take their story public, nobody can blame them. But I'm so grateful that we do have people like Zoe Quinn and Anita Sarkeesian and so many others who have stepped forward and have not gone away. Hearing from Zoe so early in the lifespan of Polygamer really reaffirmed for me the value and importance of sharing these stories. Now, this podcast aired, as I said, in February of 2015. It was in October of 2017 that the Me Too movement really started getting public notice. And that, too, was founded on the power of people standing up and being visible about behavior they have endured and would not tolerate. By setting that example, these individuals emboldened the rest of us to speak up. It's so hard to be the first person to say something. But sometimes being that first person is what empowers the second person and the third person, and then you're no longer alone. It doesn't matter who you are or how much power you think you have. You take power when you stand up, and you give other people power when you stand up with I still have a hard time standing up to bullies, whether they're strangers on the internet or people in my own family. But it's something I hope I'm getting better at, and it's helpful to know that there are others who have gone before. The next clip is from Dwayne DeFore, who appeared on podcast episode number 9 on November 12th, 2014. Just a few months earlier, Dwayne had been on the PAX East panel with me that inspired this podcast. 
I had him on the show to talk about toxic masculinity. And in this segment, I asked him, what's wrong with masculinity being defined by football, golf, power tools, and muscle cars? That's sort of what we're told. This is what a man is, and that's it, right? Um, we're sort of given this one definition of masculinity. And what I strive for is, is coming up with uh, variations of masculinity and accepting that that's not what all men are into or that we shouldn't push all men to be into those things. You know, that, that masculinity can be so much greater than that. Right. Um, so, you know, again, there's nothing inherently wrong with that stuff. I, I'm a huge football fan. My, my Saturdays, Sundays, you know, Monday nights, Thursday nights, they're all dedicated to football, but I'm also much more than that. And that's what I would like, you know, sort of culturally to be more acceptable. Uh, and not only that, but then there's often a set of co-current behaviors that come along with that, right? And that's, there are a lot of troubling behaviors that, that men are sort of taught to exhibit, um, ways in which men are, uh, you know, again, culturally, this sort of cultural norm of masculinity taught to engage in behaviors that are self-harmful, or harmful to other people. And so what I really try and do is, is question that and say, why is this considered part of masculinity? Um, why can't we expand this definition of masculinity? And I'm not trying to tell anybody, you need to be this way, you need to be that way, or this is wrong or that is wrong. But uh, other than, I, I mean, I, I take a, I have a strong stance on things like violence and that sort of thing being wrong in, in pretty much every circumstance, but sort of norms of behavior, beliefs, things that we're into, you know, depictions of what it means to be a man. Let's expand that. Let's question what would it look like uh, if it were something different. We're people who have a full range of emotional responses. So let's just be aware of that. Going into that podcast, I thought I don't fit the definition of masculinity. I don't like any of the things I mentioned, power tools, muscle cars, football, I don't follow sports, I don't play sports, I don't drink beer. So I just thought I need to be okay with existing outside the parameters of masculinity. And that was okay. What Dwayne taught me was that I actually do exist within the boundaries of masculinity. It's just that the boundaries are wider and broader than I imagined. This lesson was also exemplified in the movie Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I saw that movie before I knew what kind of person J.K. Rowling is, and I have not seen the other two movies in the trilogy. But at least in the first one, we are introduced to Newt Scamander, a wizard who is gentle and nurturing and exhibiting a lot of qualities that some stereotypes would associate with women, taking care of people, for example. There's a video essay on YouTube that I will link to in the comments of this podcast, The Fantastic Masculinity of Newt Scamander, by the channel Pop Culture Detective. This 14-minute essay outlines all the ways in which Newt Scamander demonstrates what a man is capable of and how limited we are by not acknowledging and accepting those manifestations into the definition of masculinity. I really appreciate the opportunity both that movie and my podcast with Dwayne gave me to reframe how I think about myself. Now, I still have some work to do. Dwayne and I also talked a lot about toxic masculinity, the, the idea he mentioned about how the only emotion we can express is anger. I find that I have a different problem. Anger is one of the few emotions I can't express. 
I was raised in a household where expressing anger was met with even more anger and things would escalate. So that taught me very quickly to not ever express that emotion. So that's something I need to work on. However, the stereotype that men only express anger is an issue not only for how we express ourselves, but also how those expressions are received. I can be very passionate about some subjects. And unfortunately, since it's expected that a man expressing emotion is therefore expressing anger, sometimes my passion is misperceived. And I've had conversations that I've been in be described as heated when I thought, what? (laughs) No, I was excited. Toxic masculinity hurts all men and it hurts all people. And the first step to addressing that is acknowledging it and learning about it so that you can start to see it both in what you allow yourself to feel and to communicate and in how other people communicate with you. Another podcast that helped me expand my vocabulary of gender and sexuality was number 73, aired December 13th, 2017, with Wally S. It's always a very personal, kind of emotional thing to have, you know, to describe your own gender identity and how that makes you feel and things like that. So I'm, you know, hasn't to say like, this is this all the time. But that's really like a lot about feeling a connection to you know, one part of the binary, but not being completely 100% that way. And all the time, I almost think of it as sort of like three different scales, you know, who you're attracted to, what your gender identity is, and, you know, how much interested in your relationship or sex are you? Like those are kind of three different, you know, color picker tools, you know, a big spectrum of big box of color, like in Photoshop. The mainstream media has a lot of very simple labels to describe people's orientation. You're either straight, gay, lesbian, or bi, and there's not much else. The fourth letter in LGBT stands for transgender, and I think these are the four buckets that we most often hear about. Not only is there a vast vocabulary beyond those four terms to describe orientation and gender identity, but before this interview with Wally, I'd never really thought about there being a third bucket, how interested you are in relationships. For example, I have a friend who's bisexual, but that label alone doesn't tell me the degree to which they are attracted to other people or how they operate in romances and relationships. The answer to that is demisexual in this case. I have another friend who's transgender, gray sexual, homoromantic. Gray sexual in this case means that they are somewhere on the spectrum between sexuality and asexuality, and homoromantic meaning that they like people of the same gender as them. So you can measure somebody's romantic drive and sexual drive differently from each other. Now, I know a lot of the lessons I'm sharing in this episode of Polygamer are probably obvious to you listeners. And at this point in my education, it is to me as well. But this episode was the moment where I learned that. And not only does it change how I interact with and understand other people, it can also change how I understand myself. Once I know what these terms are, it helps me better understand how it is that I operate. And I really appreciate Wally being the one to explain that to me. This one is from episode number 99 with Dr. Dana Plank, which aired March 18th, 2020. She is a ludomusicologist. Musicology is literally the study of music. Ludomusicology is the study of video game music. And here's what she had to say about that. The greatest thing about working in this field is the opportunity for connecting to other people in a way that I can't do if I'm researching a composer from the medieval era, you know, (laughs) I can't talk to them. I can't, I can't get in their head, but I get these incredible connections both to the composers and to the fellow scholars in the field that are nerdy and excited and and brilliant and pushing you to want to want to 
be better and, and do better. That's the, the biggest takeaway is that this field, more so than just about any other pocket of musicology that I've ever encountered, the folks are giving and compassionate and gracious and excited to connect and build genuine deep friendships with the folks we work with. And how many fields can say that? I think there's something about when you're a nerd, (laughs) there's such a deep, a deep passion and it exists in a place that's pretty deep down and, and almost vulnerable um, to admit how much you love something to somebody else, no matter what that is. And when you really connect with someone on a, on that deep level and it gets down into that the the depths of, of where that comes from, I think that you feel seen and and like you've just found your people. I love that. I love that about the field. I, I know that we strive really hard to not as much as we can not be gatekeepers. We want folks to come to the conference and participate. And, and that doesn't mean that we have to sacrifice academic rigor. You know, we still, we still want to push each other to be really strong, but we want to bring newcomers into the fold and we want them to get their ideas out there and, and share with us. And, you know, I've, I found it very easy to approach people in the field and send them a draft of something I'm working on and they'll take their time to read it and, and send it back with beautiful comments. It's, it's just such an incredible experience being in this field. And it's why I'm never going to leave it. <laughs> I'm not going to go off and suddenly, you know, be the minimalist opera scholar. I may do side projects in other areas of musicology and I do plan to do that. But uh, I think my home is always going to be in Ludo because these people are the best you're going to find. I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast probably grew up not having a lot of people to share their video games with. It was probably a niche hobby that wasn't shared by your peers. Maybe it even got you bullied. Who knows? Now we have events like GamerX and different games and MAGFest, places where people can congregate and share their passion for games. It's hard to sustain that year-round, though. Maybe you are going on to servers in an MMORPG and playing with other gamers. Sometimes you're even turning on voice chat and making friends with them, which is fantastic. For me, instead of playing MMOs, I hosted a podcast, and I had some of the most wonderful people on this show. I love the passion that they brought to all of their topics, whether it was speedrunning, cosplaying, or ludomusicology. And given the nature of Polygamer, we probably had other things in common too, like political views. I've actually made friends on this podcast. There was one guest who, years after she was on the show, I happened to be passing through Chicago, and we went out for tacos. Tacos! It was amazing. Not just that, though. Dana made a very interesting academic point about how young the video game field is. When you are studying classic literature, you can't go interview Charles Dickens or William Shakespeare. They're not available. Those primary sources are gone. But with video games... The people who made the music of the games we grew up with, like Koji Kondo, who made the soundtrack for the original Super Mario Brothers and The Legend of Zelda, they still exist. They're still around. And you can reach out to those individuals. In the podcast with Dana, she talked about reaching out to the original composer of the soundtrack for the 8-bit Nintendo game, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, based on the Kevin Costner movie. She just went on LinkedIn and was able to find that person and talk to him, and he was astonished that anybody would want to talk to him about that, that game that he made decades ago, but he was happy to do so. And that has been my experience with gaming as well. If I reach out to somebody and say, hey, 
give me a few minutes of your time to tell me about that thing you're passionate about. They'll do that. And I can do that whether the thing they worked on was last week or last century. We exist in a finite and valuable period in gaming history where the progenitors, the founders, are still here. There aren't many people in the history of this planet who can say they were there on the ground floor of a whole new medium. (laughs) And we can say that. How cool is that? My next audio clip refers back to the intro to every episode of Polygamer, where we say that gaming is for everybody. In episode 39, I talked with Mark Seville of Special Effect. In episode 43, I talked with Johnny Richardson of Able Gamers. In both of those episodes, we talked about how to make games for people who are differently abled. But it was in episode number 74 with Joseph Bine, which aired on January 17, 2018, where we talked about how to make games when you are differently abled. The challenge is when the developer himself or herself has a disability and doesn't have access to the tools that are needed. That's, that's when it becomes difficult to actually make, make the, the project. When we started the project, there really wasn't any uh, major game engine that was even remotely accessible for a blind developer. And so for Ian to do what Ian wanted to do, he really just had to build it from the ground up. I believe there may be some plugins now that uh, bring some some screen reader accessibility into Unity. I'm not positive about that because that's really not my department. But yeah, uh, we haven't named it yet. But once once the engine has a name, then I can tell you what engine we used. You may have heard the term white savior, a cinematic or literary or real life trope where a white person is seen as liberating, rescuing, or uplifting people who are not white. From speaking with Joseph, I realized that I was thinking of making accessible games as important and necessary, but also a sort of abled saviorism. I had thought only about the end product and not how the end product gets made and what tools are available to make games accessible and whether or not those tools themselves were accessible. There are so many things that we just don't think about unless they're right in front of us. When I was an undergraduate, I started in a computer science major, and I saw the ways that a variety of my classmates interacted with hardware and software. But once I left that major and that industry, it was no longer front of mind. And I certainly never thought about it specifically in the context of video games. These are important reminders that not everybody's experiences are ours, and we need to account for diverse requirements throughout the pipeline not just in the games that we play. My next clip is from episode number 106, which aired October 14th, 2020, when I spoke with Courtney Garcia, who runs the YouTube channel Screen Therapy, where she does deep analyses of video games and their narrative composition in terms of what benefits they bring to the player and how they help us emotionally develop as individuals. Courtney and I talked about a lot of my favorite games, but we also talked about some games that never really did it for me. And I always feel a little guilty about that. Games like Undertale, for example. Everybody seems to love Undertale. And I did not. I, no, I just could not wait for it to be over. And I never want to play that game again. I did play it all the way to the end, but it just never grabbed me. Not the narrative, not the story, nothing. Since Courtney's a fan of that game, I asked her, what was I missing? And how bad should I feel for not getting it? 
I think we've all had those experiences where we watched something or read something a little bit too early. And although we knew everybody was telling us, oh, this is really important, we just weren't really there. It didn't really have a spark for us. And that's okay because not everything is meant for everyone. If you don't have that spark with the piece, it's okay to move on to something else that has that spark you need instead of trying to fit everything into yourself. Validating for me to hear. Usually when we say a game isn't for somebody, we're using that as a defense for the diversity of games. For example, if some stereotypical macho guy was like, I want my Call of Duty games. I don't care about all these games with words and blah, blah, blah and feelings. Well, we would just say, that's okay. This game isn't for you. Now, I'm not the macho person in this example, but it was still nice to know that I can play a game and not enjoy it. And that's okay. It's not that there's something wrong or broken with me. It's just that games are for everybody, but not every game is for everybody. I'm a fan of narrative games like Firewatch and Life is Strange. So I also asked Courtney how the emotional impact of video games has evolved from the decades when we played as vague characters with little story, such as Pac-Man, to games like today. I think the real nugget of the use of identification is relating to some aspects of that character, of getting invested emotionally in their context, in their life, in their story, so that you can relate it to something you've been through. And it just kind of teases out these emotions in you or these experiences or this uh, empathy and identification that you wouldn't have had on your own, or you can't have with Pac-Man. I think it would be a very different emotional experience for any player to play Pac-Man or Firewatch. There have been research and studies that show that people who read books tend to be more empathetic. Reading fiction develops empathy. I knew this was also true for video games that describe themselves as empathy games. For example, Depression Quest by Zoe Quinn made me understand depression more than anybody else who lives with depression had been able to explain to me, just by inserting myself into that vague character. Beyond the very precise label of empathy games, though, I hadn't really thought about how other games might have similar impact. But Courtney talked about how even AAA studios with games like The Last of Us are using similar techniques and having similar impacts to indie games like Firewatch. I hadn't realized that the impact of video games was more subtle and more pervasive than I suspected. And it heartens me to know that video games might actually be making people better. We've been spending so many decades arguing against the idea that video games cause violence. And we know that they have concrete benefits for kids, for example, reading comprehension, hand-eye coordination. But knowing that Video games also are teaching kids and teenagers and adults things like empathy, something that this world dramatically needs more of. Well, heck, I don't understand why more people aren't playing video games, why more parents aren't giving their kids video games. Now, as Courtney and I discussed, you may not get that same emotional connection and impact in a game like Call of Duty. And that's what a lot of kids seem to be drawn to. But if they were playing games like Old Man's Journey, that might teach them more emotional skills that will actually prove more useful. Speaking of things we learn as kids, the next clip is from episode number 24, which aired June 24th, 2015. That was three days after Father's Day, and I interviewed my dad. I grew up in a household that had a pinball machine in the basement, and I finally got to ask my dad, 
Where did that come from? How did we end up with that? Well, we were running a, a that nightclub wherein uh, after they bring in, you'd have a private company come in. They own the pinball machine and they would bring in a machine. Those things even then where the costs were prohibitive, they would set them up on your premises and you'd split the revenue. But after a while, say six weeks, eight weeks, it became old hat and you, you weren't making, instead of uh, 50 people playing at a night, there were maybe 25. Then there were 10, then there were five. And then it just sat there and had cobwebs. So they would, that company would now take that machine out and bring it to some other place and start the whole cycle over again there, but bring you in something brand new to, the, to this area. And so now when they ultimately just didn't have any other place to put them, I said to uh, one of the owners, I said, hey, what are you going to do with it? He said, well, now it kind of goes into the junk pile. We use it for, we use it for parts. I said, how about uh, rehabbing it? Bring it to my house. What would you charge me? And we, we negotiated a price. And that's how it ended up in our, in our cellar. That was a story I'd never heard before. And if you think there's no lesson to be learned here about diversity in gaming, you're probably right. I admit, me having my own father on the show was somewhat selfish. When I introduced that episode, I explained to people, diversity means interviewing both child-free individuals and parents, and my dad, of course, being an older generation, is yet another form of diversity. Both of those things are completely true and are completely valid. But I had a third reason I didn't share for why I wanted my dad on the show. It's because his health wasn't great. And I suspected that I might not have many more opportunities to sit down and talk to him for an hour at a time. And I was right. Less than a year after that episode aired, he was gone. And that episode of Polygamer is probably the longest verbal record that exists of my dad. Just listening to it long enough to find a clip to put into this final episode was not easy. But I'm glad I have it. There are a lot of things about my dad I don't miss. And that's one of the reasons why I interviewed him about such a frivolous thing as pinball. Maybe I should have instead talked to him about his proudest moments, the things that he regretted, his fears, his hopes. Instead, I have this, and that's okay. My dad is the one who introduced me to video games and to Star Trek and to fantasy novels. I sincerely doubt he knew how much of an impact he was going to have. I don't think he intended for me to grow up to be the only nerd in the family, the person who enjoyed these things even more than the person who introduced me to them. But here I am. And there he was on my podcast. So I guess maybe there is a lesson to be learned here, which is enjoy the times you have. And on that note, I want to bring in the final clip for this episode. It's from episode number 100, and it aired April 15th, 2020, the first episode of Polygamer after the pandemic shut down in the United States. It was with voice actor Sarah El Male. I'll play two clips for you. The first is about the power of acting. Yoda is there talking and Frank Oz is a genius, but it takes Mark believing in that puppet to help us believe in that puppet. Mark is scared of the puppet. Mark is listening to the puppet, learning from the puppet. You know, I mean, he's like humbled by the puppet, frustrated. All of those feelings and all of that work to elevate Yoda as a person who we should respect as a mystical being is done by Mark. And I think that is such a voice actor's, 
It's any actor, but it's a voice actor's ability because it's that same thing I was talking about before. It's like the power of his imagination to stare at a puppet and see all the people working behind the scenes with their hands up its butt and everything like and still give it truth. I think that's a voice actor's superpower. You either as a person, as a human, are able to embrace your imagination and find truth and to believe in it so fully that you can make other people believe in it with you. That's just like a core fundamental necessity for this particular job. One thing I learned from former guest of this show, TJ, who appeared on episode 12, is the cinematic technique of telling an audience what you need to know about a character by watching how other people react to that character. This can be seen at the end of Avengers Endgame when Captain Marvel appears. It can be seen in the movie Nobody when he walks into the tattoo parlor. And as Sarah just explained, it can be seen in how Mark Hamill reacts to a puppet. The first two examples I just gave about Avengers and Nobody are about showing somebody's power and how other people fear them. Sarah's example proves that it's not just about making somebody strong, but also about making somebody believable. When you show up to your life every day with that kind of sincerity, it makes whatever you invest yourself in a little bit more real, whether it's your jobs or your hobbies or your friendships. There are some people who will rag on enthusiasm or earnestness, and I just don't get that. I'd much rather spend my time with people who are passionate and unabashedly so. Other people's sincere love makes me happy, and those are the people I want to be around. On that note, one more clip from Sarah. That's the only thing you can do and that will leave you on your deathbed kind of not regretting things is if you had tried your best the whole time to live as authentically as possible. That's why I decided to do voiceover. Like I was like, this is a silly career, but I will regret not having tried my hardest to do this if I don't do that, so I better do it. That advice was a little hard to hear at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all quarantining and not able to pursue much of anything. But I think the last few years have also given us perspective on how important it is to spend this short, precious life that we have doing the things that we love. I have loved the last eight years of doing Polygamer. And I'm grateful to Sarah and my dad and Courtney and Joseph and Dr. Plank and Wally and Dwayne and Zoe and so many other guests who spent just a few of their heartbeats talking with me. Before I wrap up, a few fun facts about Polygamer. If you wanted to listen to all 127 episodes of Polygamer, it would take you 135 hours, or about five and a half days. Fun fact, there are actually 130 episodes when you count this one, plus two side quests, movie reviews that Sabriel Mastin and I co-hosted. I thought the most popular episode of Polygamer would be the one featuring Zoe Quinn. But that was, in fact, the second most popular episode. The most popular episode was when I interviewed someone who makes original art based on video game characters. The title for that episode was Polygamer Number 36, Gay Erotica Artist Stephen H. Garcia. That is the power of search engine optimization. If you want a lot of views, put the words Gay Erotica in your title. It's hard to say exactly how many guests there have been on the show, since there have been many repeat guests, such as Susan Arndt, Tifa Robles, Matt Baum, and Sabriel Mastin, to name a few. Some episodes were recordings of panels I hosted at conventions. Some episodes were recordings of panels I didn't host at conventions I didn't attend, but whose panelists gave me permission to use the audio on this show. But altogether, there have been 137 voices on this show that were not my own. There are other voices I always hoped to hear on Polygamer. I interviewed speedrunner Kung Fu Fruit Cup, but I would have loved to have heard from an organizer of awesome games done quick. Competitive Smash Brothers player Milk Tea was on the show, but how about an esports commentator? 
We heard from musicians such as Taylor Davis, but not soundtrack remixers like someone from ocremix.org. I tried to tell those stories, but we just never got the timing to work. I know that if this podcast kept going, I would never run out of stories to tell, but I now look forward to being in the audience for those stories. On polygamer.net, you can find a list of similarly-minded podcasts that you might enjoy. They are, in alphabetical order, Character Reveal, Checkpoint, Ethics and Video Games, Feminist Frequency Radio, Spawn on Me, and The Weekly Cooldown. For a diverse podcast about Nintendo games, check out NFocus on the Game Podular Network. You can also find me and Polygamer alumna Sabriel Masson co-hosting the Star Trek podcast Transporter Lock. Of course, there is also an entire back catalog of Polygamer episodes for you to listen to. I'll be keeping the website up and the episodes available, and all MP3s and their transcripts are also available in the Internet Archive, a nonprofit digital library found at archive.org. Polygamer episodes are published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. Please feel free to distribute wherever else you like. If you have been a loyal listener all along, then thank you. I hope things have gotten better for you along the way. And if you're listening to this in the distant future, then here's a message from the past. Things do get better. You're living proof. Events are often framed as having a beginning, middle, and end. But another way to frame things is that there is an end, a transition, and then a beginning. One thing can't start unless something else ends first. I don't know what the next thing will be for me, but I'll never know unless Polygamer ends first. So here's to whatever's next. Thank you, and see you out there. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Thank you.